Well, good morning, church. This morning is a special morning. It's a good, it's a good morning. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll have the scripture up on the screen as well. My goal in this time is still to do some preaching uh, with us here, but I also will do some time of teaching and instruction about baptism. With this being the first time we've had baptisms here at this, this new church plant, I do want to do some teaching on it. And so some of this will feel like a sermon, and then some of this will feel like a classroom where we have some teaching and instruction on baptism. But I wanted to start with that video as sort of my sermon intro, because one of the reasons that we do baptisms and one of the reasons we celebrate communion uh, every week is because those are visual aids that God has given us. Visual aids that God has given us to help us understand his truth. Now, most of the time, I do not like visual aids. I do not like to preach with visual aids. I feel like the, that can become pretty cheesy sometimes. But these are two visual aids that Jesus has given us, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to help us understand his truth. And one of the reasons that he gave us these two visual aids, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is to remind us of our identity. They remind us of our identity, our identity that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. It's what theologians call our union with Christ, our union with Christ. If you want to start to understand your identity as a Christian, you must first understand your union with Christ. Because you have to understand that your salvation, your hope for future glory, your hope for forgiveness of sins, and all the blessings that come to us as believers, we have those because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And I've titled this sermon, The Triumph of Grace. The Triumph of Grace, because that is what we are exalting and celebrating this morning. Now, we are celebrating with Valerie and Kessa this morning, but we are not necessarily celebrating the fact that, that Kessa and Valerie are awesome, okay? Even though they are, even though they are awesome. That's not primarily what we're celebrating this morning. We're not celebrating that they were smart enough to figure out the way to salvation, we're not celebrating that they want to be a better person or that they want to be, you know, be a more moral person. We're not celebrating that they found their way to God. No, we are primarily celebrating the triumph of grace in their life. We're celebrating God's grace in their life to rescue them from the power of sin, to release them from the penalty of sin. And of, for, we are celebrating God's grace that has now placed them in Christ. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the triumph of grace, that they are in Christ. It's this idea of grace. Grace, right? God's undeserved favor. It's a definition for grace. God's undeserved favor has triumphed in their lives. So now look with me at Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, there were people who did not like the fact that Paul was preaching so much about grace, okay? These were people that did not understand the triumph of grace, and therefore they were upset that Paul would preach and put so much emphasis on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. 
You see, they were upset because the, the concern was if you emphasize grace too much, that people would then take it as a license to sin, right? Like, well, hey, if I'm saved by grace and not by works, then I'm just going to keep sinning. I'm just going to keep living how I want to live. What difference does it make if I'm saved by grace? God will forgive me in the end. I'll live how I want to live, and in the end, I'll ask for God's forgiveness, and hey, he has to forgive me, right? That's right. Amen. That is not right, okay? <laughs> but maybe you've had times in your own life where you've thought that way, right? Maybe you've had times where you've, you've taken this good news of God's grace and you've decided that, hey, you can just live in sin. What's the big deal? And maybe some of you even right now are living this way. You're asking questions like, if I'm saved by the work of Christ and not by my works, then why can't I just live in sin and live in disobedience to God? But, oh, church, let me warn you. When we ask questions like that, it reveals hearts that don't understand grace, and it reveals hearts that don't understand salvation. To me, those questions come from hearts that have not experienced the triumph of grace in their own life. When we ask those questions like that, it shows, it shows that we think our ultimate problem is that we just need to be better. And then we hear about grace, and we figure grace can come in and just kind of polish us up a little bit. Or maybe we used to live like we just thought we needed to be a good person. We just needed to try better, be better on our own. And then we heard about grace and we thought, oh, hey, now we don't have to try as hard to be better. Like grace, we're saved by grace. Well, all will be forgiven. If, if, if Christ will, will save us no matter how bad or good we are, then what's the point of even trying to be better? But everyone... Everyone listen, okay? I need everyone's attention. Kids, I need, I need your attention. Men and women, I need your attention. You need to hear this, okay? Please do not come to church week after week and think that the primary message of the Bible is that we need to be better or that we need to be nicer or we need to try harder. That is not the primary message of the Bible, the ultimate, now everyone, everyone with me, kids, men and women, everyone with me, the ultimate message of the Bible is not that you need to be better. It's that you need to be made new. Amen. You need to be made new. You need to be a new creation. The old you needs the grace of God to triumph in your life and for God to make you a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture and yet one of the most misunderstood Bible verses as well. It says this. We'll have it up on the screen. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that in Christ talk again. You'll find it all throughout the Bible. It, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that's a great uh, coffee mug Bible verse. That's a great Christian bookstore Bible verse. And we can take that and we can think, yeah, new creation. When I'm in Christ, he polishes me up. He makes me better. He shines up all the smudges in my life. He wipes away all the dirt, and I'm as good as new. But when we do that, 
When we read it like that, we miss the main point of the passage. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That word creation means creature. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creature. When God created the world, he created each according to its kind. He created a lot of different creatures, right? He created horses. He created cows. He created dogs. Uh, he maybe created cats. I think I could argue they are a result of the fall. Uh, but, but maybe cats, right? He created giraffes, elephants. And then finally, finally, he creates human beings. He creates a man and he creates a woman. But do not think that God is done creating because now something amazing is happening and Paul is trying to get this across to believers that when we are in Christ, we are a new creature he has created. A human being who has union with Christ, the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of a human being, that is a new creature. Essentially, that is a new kind of species walking on this earth, a human being with the living God dwelling inside of them. You don't just need to be better. You need to be made new. You need to be a new creation. You don't just need to be a polished up version of yourself. You need to be a completely new creation. Look back at Romans 6 as Paul now responds to those that would want to take grace as a license to sin. He says this in verse 2. He says, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we think that grace gives us a license to sin, here's the problem. We are thinking of salvation in a very human way. And Paul is saying the question proves that you do not understand the gospel. It proves you do not understand the good news, right, of the gospel. And we know that the good news of the gospel, it starts with the bad news that Adam and Eve, who were created to glorify God and enjoy a relationship with him, they chose to disobey, they chose to rebel, they chose not to trust God. And as a result, this thing called sin has now entered into the world. And so every human being being born since Adam and Eve is now born with this sin nature, this propensity to rebel and disobey God and to not trust God. And all joking aside, this is why you don't have to teach a child how to disobey, right? It truly does come naturally to us. We were born under the power of sin, and sin enslaved us. Therefore, we were not born free like Adam and Eve were created, but we were born into slavery with hearts that didn't want to honor God as God, with hearts that wanted to be God ourselves, and as a result, then, we have all personally sinned. We've all rebelled. We've all disobeyed. We've all broken God's law. We've all not trusted God. And so not only are we under the power of sin, but now we face the penalty of sin, which God's word says is death. 
the penalty of sin is death. Now that's not God being mean and that's not God being cruel. That is God being holy. And he is holy, 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 and he is infinitely and perfectly righteous and good and pure. And therefore, one act of cosmic treason against him, one act of disobedience by Adam and Eve against him, it rightly and justly deserved the infinite wrath of God to be poured out on all their kind to come. And so all of us, we were born under the power of sin, And we faced the penalty of sin being death. But God. But God, according to his great love, mercy, and compassion, he came to earth. He took on human form. His name is Jesus. And he was born of a virgin, so he did not inherit the sin nature that had been passed down from generation to generation. He was not under the power of sin, and then he went on to live a perfect life of obedience. And then he went to the cross, and he took the sin of his people upon himself, and he willingly allowed himself to be completely drowned by the wrath of God. The sin of his people was drowned on the cross by the wrath of God. He paid the penalty for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he's now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things. And he's calling a people to himself. He's calling a people back into relationship with God that was lost in the garden. He's calling a people to repent and turn from their sin and turn back to God. And he's pouring out his spirit on to his people, uniting them to himself and creating new creatures, new creations, a people who are now dead to sin and alive to God. You see, when you really understand the gospel of grace, when you rightly understand grace, you understand that grace does not give you a license to sin. No, grace has triumphed over your sin. When you rightly, I'll say it again, when you rightly understand grace, when you rightly understand the gospel, it's not that grace gives you a license to sin, it's that grace has triumphed over your sin. Now, that's not to say that you will never sin again, right? Followers of Jesus after salvation still sin. If you've ever met a Christian or if you've been a Christian for longer than a half an hour, you know this to be true, right? Christians, we still sin. But here's the thing. We are no longer under the power of sin. We are no longer under the enslavement of sin. And we are no longer under the penalty of sin. Excuse me. We who are in Christ, we are dead to sin. Romans 6, look at verse 6. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Skip down to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Church, when you are united to Christ, you can look back on the cross and you can remember that when Jesus died on the cross, your old self, your old sin nature, your old creature, it was put to death. Past tense, old self was crucified. It was killed. It has died. And it does not control you any longer. It does not dictate to you your actions and choices. Sure, we still sometimes, we will walk back into the things that we used to do. And we can at times still desire what our old nature desired and the old habits that we used to be in. We can fall back into old patterns or ways of rebellion or distrust. But when we do, oftentimes the Holy Spirit or a loving brother or sister can come alongside us and remind us that that's not who we are anymore. That person died a long time ago. I'm talking like 2,000 years ago that person died. On the cross, that old nature, it was crucified. You are not dead in your sins any longer. You are alive in Christ. Your identity has gone from rebel to friend. When you're saved, your, your affections have gone from hater of God to lover of God. You've gone from dead to sin to alive in God. And because of the triumph of grace, you are no longer in the line of Adam. You are now in Christ. In Christ. And there are some of you this morning, you've maybe heard about grace, you've talked about grace, you've maybe even sung about grace but you have not actually experienced the triumph of grace in your life. And I would plead with you this morning to press into the goodness and the mercy of God and see that your ultimate need is not just to be better. It's not just to try harder. It's not to just be more polished or a politer version of yourself. Your ultimate need is to be in Christ. It is to be a new creation. And so my prayer is that you would repent of your sin and that you would turn from your sin. You would receive and believe that Jesus is God and that you would receive and believe that his death, his life, death, and resurrection are sufficient for your salvation. And they are sufficient to release you from the power of sin and to release you from the penalty of sin that you face. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would apply Christ's work to your life and that you would be made into a new creation. That God would create a new creature in you. And so if the Spirit is stirring in your heart a faith in Christ or a love for God, like don't, don't deny that, don't ignore it, but receive Him as your Savior and trust Him as your God. Experience the triumph of grace that positionally places you now in Christ. And when we baptize, we are visually experiencing and we are publicly proclaiming that someone is in Christ. Someone is in Christ.
And this means of grace, it's such a good gift because uh, not only does it help the person being baptized understand who they are, but it reminds the rest of us as well of our new identity. It reminds all of us that we are in Christ, that our old nature was crucified and buried with Christ, and that we have been raised to new life with him. But before we baptize... Let me teach a little bit. What is baptism? What is baptism? To understand baptism rightly, we need to understand it in the context that it is one of the two ordinances of the church, okay? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, or sometimes we call it communion, are the two ordinances that we practice as a church. Now, we call them ordinances, that word, because they were ordained by Christ for his followers to do, okay? Some denominations and churches call them sacraments, and that's fine to call them that as well, but we typically call them ordinances. Jesus ordained these for us to follow. So most Protestant churches, they determine their ordinances by three factors, okay? Number one is that they had to be instituted by Christ. Number two, they had to be taught by the apostles. And number three, they were practiced by the early church. And so using those three criteria, we get two ordinances. We get baptism and we get the Lord's Supper. To quote uh, Greg Allison, who's a professor at Southern Seminary and a pastor at Sojourn, he says, baptism is the initial rite or celebration of entering into the new covenant people of God. The Lord's Supper is the continuing rite or celebration of being in new covenant relationship with God. Okay? So once you are saved, baptism is the first ordinance you would typically celebrate. It's the initial celebration of, our, of your union with Christ, entering into fellowship with his people. And then the Lord's Supper is the continual reminder of that union, the continual reminder of the fellowship that you have with God and with his people. Now, the word baptize, it means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. And it was a word that was typically used uh, and referred to when something was drowned, okay? Now, Valerie and Kessa, no worries. We're not going to hold you down too long, okay? But that word, it was used in, in to, to talk about something that had drowned, to be immersed in something, okay? And so it does give us a picture that when Christ died on the cross, our sins were drowned by the wrath of God. It gives us also a picture, just the water of our sins being washed away. It gives us a picture of our union with Christ, right? When he died, we died. And when he rose, we rose. Baptism also, uh, baptism with, with water, it also gives this cool picture of us escaping God's judgment through water. Much like when you think of Noah and the ark, right? Right? To be in Christ is like to be in the ark, escaping the judgment of God. Much like the Israelites passing through the Red Sea for their salvation. Water gives us this picture of escaping God's judgment. And it is also a celebration that now someone has entered into the fellowship of the body of Christ, the church. They are one. They are adopted into the family of God. And baptism, it is a public declaration that the person wants to follow Jesus and they want the church and the world to know that they are now following Jesus. So that's what baptism, baptism is briefly, but why do we do it? Why do we baptize? 
Well, first of all, it is an ordinance, right? So it was instituted by Christ. It was practiced by the apostles. It was carried out by the early church. But then in the Great Commission, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we see all throughout the book of Acts, the apostles, they baptize those who, who receive and believe the gospel. So it was commissioned to us by Jesus to go to make disciples and to baptize those who have received and believed this good news. Well, here's another question. Does baptism save you? Does baptism save you? Now, some denominations and some churches do believe that the act of being dunked, dipped, or sprinkled, whatever you know, their, their choice would be, they do believe that that act is necessary for salvation. But church, that is not what the Bible teaches. For we know that salvation is not because of any work or anything that we do. The act of being baptized by humans with water does not save. Jesus saves, okay? God saves. But there is a baptism that does save. Let me explain. John the Baptist talked about it, okay? He talked about it in Matthew 3. And I would say John the Baptist, just his title alone, I would say makes him an expert in baptism. Uh, he says this in Matthew 3, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some in, in kind of our, our brothers and sisters in Pentecostal churches uh, talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Really, we believe every believer, when God saves you at your conversion, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, okay? So when we baptize you with water, it's really an outward sign of what Jesus has already done in your heart. We baptize people when we see evidence that Jesus has baptized them first. Make sense? So our baptism, you going underwater, that in and of itself is not uh, saving you, okay? But we do it in a response of obedience in what we've already seen Jesus has done in your heart. If we believed that us baptizing you saved you, we would throw way, you know, way more pool parties at mom and dad's house and just kind of bait you closer to the pool and, and, and sneak attack Nacho Libre baptize you, okay? But we, we do not b believe that. But we do, so, so while, while we don't believe baptism is necessary for salvation, we do believe it is necessary for you to be obedient to Christ, okay? So if you have, when you have been saved, when you have received and believed the gospel, we do believe in obedience to Christ. You do need to be baptized. And so we would encourage everyone, once they have received Christ as their Savior, to be baptized and to publicly proclaim what Christ has already done on your heart. Well, this leads us to the next question. Who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? We believe that believers should be baptized. All right, we believe that believers should be baptized. When someone repents of their sin and puts their trust and faith in Christ for salvation, they should be baptized. And that is what we will encourage. This, that is a precedent that we see played out through the New Testament. Believers who have received the message of the good news, they were then baptized. 
Well, this leads to a trickier question. When should a child be baptized? We don't have long to talk, so we won't get into all the details, but it's a difficult question. I don't think I have an absolute great answer for you. I don't think there's a certain age uh, because every child's maturity level is different. Every child's understanding uh, is different. And so I don't have an age to tell you when we'd feel comfortable baptizing a child. I wish we did. That would make our jobs a lot easier. Uh, But I would say before we would feel comfortable baptizing a child here at this church, they would first need to be able to give a credible profession of faith in Christ. And what that means is to to articulate, even just very simply, okay, very simply, the content of the gospel, and to be able to articulate their faith in trusting Jesus for their salvation. And then I would say, in addition to that, the parents then need to have seen some evidence of the child having some conviction over sin. The parents need to see some evidence of some fruit of the Spirit in the child's life. And then I would say the child needs to have a desire for it. This doesn't need to be something that parents are pressuring kids to do or whatnot. This needs to be a child desiring it and wanting to be baptized themselves. And so really the, the, a child, a parent, and the pastor need to be closely involved in the process and talking through about when would be the right time to baptize a child who wants to be, who wants to be baptized and is professed a faith in Christ. So we would love to, to talk through that more with you on an individual basis and to work through when is the right time uh, uh, to baptize a child. I very much believe that God saves, that God can and does save young, young, young kids. I believe that he even has filled, right, John the Baptist with the Spirit in the womb, okay? So I believe that young, young kids can be saved, but I also, we need to be responsible and not baptize a child so young that later in life they wonder if they actually have been baptized as a believer. Um, And so we just, we want to, want to work through that with you. Final question this morning, okay? Should kids who have not been baptized participate in the Lord's Supper? Should kids that have not been baptized participate in the Lord's Supper? Okay, everyone take a big breath in and out. Because there are are some different thoughts on this, okay? And I, I do not have a verse that says, Thus saith the Lord, you should not take communion before you are baptized. I do not have a verse like that, and therefore I will not authoritatively teach like that. Um, So as a church, we are going to leave some freedom for our parents to decide when it is right for their children to take communion. Okay, But I do want to clarify and say a few things, because I think you still do need uh, need to understand this. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances that Jesus gave us, and they are equally important, they are equally serious, and they are equally sacred, and both should be honored, okay? And we know that both are to be done by believers. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper every week, we often preface it with, hey, if you are not in Christ, if you're still trying to figure this thing out, we are glad you're here, but we just ask that you not participate in communion at this point, right? This is for believers. This is for those that are in Christ. And so we would say the same thing about baptism. To the best of our discernment, we're going to try to not baptize an unbeliever. Both the Lord's Supper and baptism are for believers. 
These are outward signs and symbols of what Christ has done in our hearts. So we're going to leave it up to our parents to discern when their child has made a credible profession of faith and when they can start taking communion. However, this is what my recommendation would be, okay? So I'm saying there's, there's freedom there for our parents, okay? But if you want to know what my recommendation is, if you want to know what we are doing with our boys, this is what we're doing, okay? When our, when our boys are mature enough and Lord willing, when they repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and when we see fruit in their lives, when we see conviction over sin, and when they have a desire to proclaim it to the church, we would encourage them first to be baptized, okay? Which throughout church history, baptism was the initial celebration of a Christian being united with Christ and with his church. So we would encourage them first to be baptized, and then we would encourage them to start taking the Lord's Supper, which is here a weekly reminder of what they celebrated at their baptism, okay? Baptism is the initial ordinance, and the Lord's Supper is the ongoing covenant renewal and reminder of what Christ has done. And so I would say if you have a child that's taking the Lord's Supper and hasn't been baptized, I would say that's okay. We have not taught on this. There is grace there, and there's different views on that. You are not in sin. You are not being disobedient. Nothing like that, okay? But this is what I would encourage you. If you have a child that's taking the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to also think about baptism and to talk to us about baptism. But if you think that they are not ready for baptism, I would just lovingly also encourage you to consider if they are ready for the Lord's Supper, okay? Because both carry this equal weight of seriousness and sacredness, and one should not be viewed as greater than the other. And so uh, we just, I, that would be my recommendation to you, to, to consider as parents, if you need help from uh, your pastors, we would love to walk alongside you and talk about that as well. Okay. All right, we're ready to now move into our celebration of our baptism. So uh, again, we, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded us. This is a picture of our union with Christ, united with him in his death, united with him in his resurrection. The water is a picture uh, that of Christ cleansing us from our sin, of us escaping the judgment of God. This is the initial ordinance, the entrance into the body of Christ. And this is the individual publicly proclaiming that they want to follow Jesus. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to pray, and then we will stand and sing a song and during that song, if you have kids in the classes, we would ask that you go get them and bring them back in, okay? And uh, I realize it'll be a little bit more full and the squirminess level will go up a little bit, but that's okay. We really want everyone in here for these baptisms and for these testimonies. And so during this next song, if you have kids, go get them, come back, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about how the rest of our time together is going to go. So I'll, I'll pray. We'll stand and sing, and, and please go grab kids and come back in. Father, we do thank you for the triumph of grace in our lives. We thank you that you have made us new creations. And God, we love to celebrate what you have done, and what you are doing. And so as we participate in baptism, God, may it be a picture, 
in our minds that helps us understand your good, gracious truth. That when you died, our old nature died. And when you rose, we were made new creations, raised to life, alive in God. We are in Christ. I ask that these testimonies would be edifying to our body, that they would encourage our hearts, that they would proclaim your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.